So, Dr. Chris Sara is a proud Garangarang, Tarabalang man from Bundaberg who has had a stellar career in education, in particular working with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children and families. He was the first Aboriginal principal of Sherberg State School in southeast Queensland, and during his tenure there, he significantly improved both educational and life outcomes for students. He did this through a strong and smart philosophy, which he himself developed and which encourages students to have a positive sense of cultural identity and embrace positive community leadership. He carried his philosophy over to found the Stronger Smarter Institute in 2005, which worked with schools and community leaders across Australia to deliver better outcomes for Indigenous students. He holds a PhD in psychology and was named Queenslander of the Year in 2004 and was Queensland Australian of the Year in 2010. Dr. Sara joined the University of Canberra as a professor of education in 2016, where he teaches and researches in school leadership, indigenous education and educational equity in East Asia and Australia. Today, he is Director General, Department of Seniors, Disability Services and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Partnerships, where his focus is to improve the social and economic well-being of Queensland seniors, people with disability, but also works to build a reframed relationship between Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Queenslanders and government, one which will enable them to thrive. Please welcome Dr Chris Sarah Thank you. Look, thanks so much for taking the time to come up to Mulaney to speak to us. We've got a lot to talk about tonight, but I'd like to begin with you, if I may, um, with your personal life, and, and not simply because of natural curiosity. Uh, reading your book, it comes very quickly obvious that the development of your ideas about education and a lot of other things comes directly from your own experience. As I understand it, you grew up in Bundaberg, the youngest of ten children. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. And your mother? Actually, it's technically, it's the youngest of 13, because um, I have a brother and two sisters who live in Italy, different mother. So I have two sisters who live in Italy and a brother from another mother. Yeah, I mean, that was one of the questions I was going to ask yeah. you. Actually. I mean, Sorry, how... I'm jumping the gun. No, no, that, that's fine. <laughs> how was that um, for, for, I mean, did that ever come up? Your, your father, who, your father was an Italian right? And he had come here. How did he meet your mother? How did that happen? He came out to Bundaberg in the 1950s after the Second World War and um, like a lot of Europeans did at the time, looking for work and all of that, he, um, like a lot of European men, very hard workers and you think, he, he must have been about 24, 25, 26. So you imagine being a 24-year-old deciding that you've got to up and leave, especially if you've got a wife and three children as well. Um, he, we didn't talk so explicitly about it, but we knew that we had family in Italy. We hadn't had much contact uh, with them. Um, but as time went by, we've had a lot of, lot of contact with them and we're very, very close. Yeah. Mm. So, I mean, I imagine it was a fairly crowded house there in, in <laughs> Bundaberg with ten children, yeah? It's very hard being the youngest of ten, Stephen, because when they give out the chores and they oldest, they delegate. So there's six boys and four girls and they delegate down, 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 down. So who am I going to delegate to? <laughs> so basically I did everybody's chores in the house. 
there's, a, there's nobody else to kick except the dog, really, below you. you yeah, know? yeah. No, it, was, <laughs> it, it wasn't until I re wrote the book, which is 10 years old now, that I realised what comes with being the youngest in such a big family, you know. So, we <laughs> oh gosh, we still have the, the old house that we grew up in. It was a big old sort of Queenslander at East Bundaberg, straight across the road from Milliquin Mill. And uh, shout out to my mate Pat Patrick Cumner, who's from Bundaberg, who we went to primary school together. Um, so the... And also John Barletta, who's a fellow Bundaberg guy, whose father was Italian also. Um, we... In the house, there was my mum and dad in their bedroom, and then there were the three big boys in one room the three girls in another room and then the three smaller boys in another room. My older sister, I don't ever remember her living in the house because she had moved off and had moved out of home by then. And it, so it was bunk beds and it was... Um, that was quite crowded. And as I said in the book, everything was big because um, we had to buy in bulk to feed the whole family. Um, but what I learnt... Well, when I, when I wrote the book, I reflected upon the circumstance where you, when you're the youngest, you can't bully people to get your own way. So instinctively, and rightly or wrongly, I learned a lot without learning, knowing that I was learning it about how to read people, how to manipulate circumstances, how to kind of get what you wanted, knowing that you couldn't bully your way to get what you wanted. So you had to create factions in the family. And that kind of thing. Um, but I picked up a lot of, I guess, interpersonal skills and that kind of thing just by reading situations and knowing. Um, and I, th I kind of think that that's made me successful in the roles that I've done. But also, um, I don't know if it was a... It's just how my brain is wired, I think. Um, I yearned privacy and my own space, so I would often and still <laughs> still just enjoy the prospect of disappearing into my own head. And I think part of that was because we lived in such crowded conditions that I yearned for time alone by myself to explore my own thoughts and things like that. Yeah. And, I mean, you, you, you write in the book that... I, as a growing up, you weren't even really uh, particularly aware of yourself as an Aboriginal. You were just a, you were just in uh, just it was just a family that you lived in. It was only later that that kind of came. Yeah, it, I think uh, we always knew that we were just blackfellas, you know. And um, I, I think it's probably more accurate to s describe that we weren't somehow aware that Aboriginal was supposed to be a problem somehow, you know, because we were just blackfellas and we knew that we were... When I would go fishing as a kid at the Burnett River, I knew that, you know, my people had been fishing in that river for years and we were not drilled by it, but we were just made to feel proud of that. And so when you get in the upper kind of years of primary school and high school, there are these kind of subtle messages that, that try to teach you that being Aboriginal means that you're somehow inferior. Um, so it started to register late in primary school, high school, when a sense of expectation about who we were and what we could achieve um, was, yeah, it was kind of implied that we shouldn't um, expect too much from for ourselves because we came from 
East Bundaberg, you know, with my mate Patrick over here. He was from Telegraph Road and they were like the poor white kids and we kind of found each other, you know. Um, but, yeah, you're right. It wasn't until those later years. And for me, it's thank thankfully, thanks to my mum... We just were always proud to be Aboriginal and we owned it, regardless of the bullshit that was around us. She was quite an activist in her own right, yes? Yeah, yeah. But she was... Um, the thing, I, I think, I reflect on the combination of my mum and my dad together. So to your earlier question, they probably found each other in, in Bundaberg at the margins of society, you know, blackfellas and the wogs were sort of get out of the way over there. And so they found each other at the dance halls. Um, they were never, neither of them would have been enjoyed being part of the mainstream. So they found each other at the margins, which I think is quite gorgeous when you, when you, when you reflect on that. But my father was a hard worker, uh, like John's parents, um, they were hard men and worked um, share farming, cutting cane, and not with a harvester, cutting cane with an actual... They were hard men, and, and we worked alongside him. You know, I think I mentioned in the book that that's how we made our transition from boyhood to manhood, um, was by working alongside my father and my older brothers. And then when you pick tobacco as a 12-year-old, you're getting paid a dollar an hour while the, the, the men are getting paid six dollars an hour and then eventually you come 14, 15 and then the men are getting paid eight dollars an hour and you're getting paid eight dollars an hour and so you think, I've made it to manhood. You know, it's pretty cool to reflect on and to learn the value of work in that circumstance and then put that alongside my mum who was such a fierce campaigner for humanity and standing up for the rights of blackfellas um, and just... Those two things together were pretty special, you know, yeah. and certainly anchored me in terms of who I am and what I do and um, how I think about stuff and what I expect of others and what I expect of myself. Just sticking with that thought about expectation, though, I mean, because this is something that comes through time and time again in the book, is that what you said there about when you got into sort of uh, senior high school and things like that, you found that there was this business of expectation was two-sided. There was the, the, both the education system didn't expect a lot from you, but you had kind of somehow swallowed that yourself so that you didn't expect a lot of yourself in that field either. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, it's true, it's true, because, again, um, we were... We went to school, we knew that going to school was important, and my mum pushed us, and my father, <laughs> in his, in his, he, he didn't speak good English, but in his own sort of broken English, he said, keep your brains in a school. Because um, he knew that it was important, even though he never went to school himself, is keep your brains in a school. Um, and mum always signal that education was important, but because they hadn't experienced what finishing primary school was like and even going near high school, they'd never experienced it and so they didn't, they wouldn't have really known how it worked yeah. and how things like um, having a relationship with the teacher of your kids is an important thing so that you can assert an expectation about what you want for your kids and all of those things. Those things put teachers on notice and thought, oh, I better push this 
well, kid really kid. hard, you know. Um, but I, somehow I'd... And I thought that going to high school, you just had to pass your exams and um, that was enough. Nobody taught us this rule that I only learned subsequently as a guidance counsellor, <laughs> that you, when you're in grade 11 and 12, you have to push really hard to get the highest scores that you can because that opens up more doors. I, I could land on 51% and I thought that was enough, just pass and that was all right. Yeah. I didn't really understand how the system worked. Yeah. yeah. But you were, at that point, you had... You, I mean, this is one of the things that comes through in the book all the time because you acknowledge a lot of people for the, for the steps up that they gave you through these things. There were, there were some, some teachers there who recognised that you, you, had, you had the smarts to, to go on, weren't there? Yeah, there was... I wrote about Mr Rimmer, who was a... He's unfortunately passed some years ago now, uh, a POMI teacher, and he was a little bit brown-skinned as well. And he... I remember him... When I was in grade nine history, he taught us, and he made the in lessons interesting, and um, he sucked us all in as grade nine boys because he'd play music and he'd teach us history and he'd tell us all about the history of rugby league and those sorts of things, kind of seduced us into learning about history, which is really clever when you think about it. Um, but he rang my mum at one stage to say... Uh, he's. He just rang her to say, look, Chris is really smart and he's got good and he should apply himself and there are these opportunities and blah, blah, blah. And you've got to make sure he turns up to the awards night and all of this kind of thing. And I, and I remember thinking, that's weird. Like, what is the bloody teacher ringing up my mum for, <laughs> you know? Because um, nobody else had bothered to do that, you know? Nobody would go out of their way to let anybody know that let my mum know that they thought I was actually smart. Yeah. Um, but it was, I reflect on that, and I think it was his way of saying to me, you know, you are really smart. And so in the midst of this um, array of school teachers that I'd had over the years, who were prepared to collude with this perception that average is good enough for me because I come from East Bundaberg on that side of the railway track, that I shouldn't expect too much for myself. So I didn't expect too much for myself and a whole bunch of educators colluded with that perception and so I was never caused to question it. Yeah. And so I never did. Yeah. But then, lo and behold, you end up going to teacher's training college, become a phys ed teacher, mm -hmm. go on, you do your master's, eventually you even do a PhD, yeah. going through this whole process. And then years pass and... One day you get a phone call saying, would you like to take on the role of principal in Sherbrooke mm. School? I should say that on finishing high school, I, went, I did go off to teacher's college and it was only by, not chance, it was, it was a little bit of a luck and a convergence of circumstances at the time because I didn't, like I said, I thought 51% was good enough and to get into phys ed, you had to have this Nine, I don't know if it means anything. It'll mean something to some people here. Nine, ten was the TE score, tertiary entrance score back in the day. This is like before the war, they, TE scores. <laughs> Iraq war, Iraq war. Um, <clears throat> or pick anyone these days. Is that? But, but last century, when we had TE scores, my score was 750, which was average. To get into, into phys ed, you had to have a score of 9, 10. So I was nowhere near the score. But luckily for me, they were trying to 
there was a bunch of folks, unbeknownst to me, who wanted to run a program to get more Aboriginal kids into secondary teaching. So I was given... I, they flew... They, they took me to Brisbane. I forget if I flew or not. No, I would have drove down on a bus or something. Um, and did an interview and they said, yeah, we think you can do this. Um, we think you're smart enough. We're going to give you entry to study phys ed. And... So I'm 17, right, and I'm looking at this TE score for 910 because everyone's talking about what the score was. 990 was here, and I'm 750. And I was saying to them, yeah, no, I don't, I don't think I could do that. It's too, you've got to be smart to do that. And they say, oh, don't worry about that. This, the, um, the course is three years. Um, we'll just spread your course out over four years, and you can just start off on a lighter workload and just get a feel for it. Because in ordinary circumstances, you do 50 credit points a semester for six semesters. They said, we'll just start you off on 30. I said, oh, okay. They said, it'll take you longer to do the course. But that's okay, people fail, and they, it, you know, that's no big deal. I said, oh, all right. So I signed up, I moved to Brisbane, <laughs> shared a, shared a, um, a flat with Annie Molly and my sister Lieber, um, which is a story on its own. But um, I started Teachers College, and it wasn't... In the first semester, I went OK. I did really well, actually. I met Dr Gary McLennan, feisty Irishman, who I talk about in there. And he really got into my head and said... He got in my head and like grabbed me by the sort of intellectual scruff of the neck and forced me to look at myself and see who I really was compared to what society was letting me believe I was. Yeah. And that sort of shocked me a bit. You know, I was 18 by this stage. Um, and it was a shock. Um, so by the second semester, I'd, I'd gone... I'd started off on a 60% workload. The second semester, I'd done a... 80, 90% workload, and I'd kind of, it was like this huge clunk in my head. I'd figured it out. And with Gary's help, I, I, I thought to myself, I can see what's happening here. And um, as, it, as it stood, I was going to take four years to finish this course, a three-year course. But I said to the people at the time, I want to finish this course in three years. Yeah the same as everybody else. And for the last two years, it was going to mean I'd have to work 110, 120% workload to catch up on the work that I didn't do at the, in the first year. Does that make sense? Yes. And it was that circumstance that really sort of... That was the epiphany for me because I, I went through the second year doing more than all of the other kids who had that 9, 10 score. And here's me chugging along, working my ass off with that 750 score passed everything while other kids were failing who were supposed to be smarter than me. I got into the third year, um, passed everything. And in that moment, I was committed, you know. I, I was determined to not let the people down who'd given me a chance, um, but I was determined to prove, I think. I, I just wanted to prove the system wrong and that how they would have me believe about myself wasn't the truth about who I actually was. And I thought, um, 
that was what I was driven by, you know, it's kind of why I was so focused on that, it's why I didn't pursue my rugby league career, so my, that's why I didn't play State of Origin um, <laughs> or anything like that. So, um, but I worked really hard. Yeah. Um, you know, I occasionally let my hair down at the Norman B Hotel where I'd fallen in love <laughs> quite a few times, actually. But, um, <laughs> um, but I passed everything. And some of those people who had this TE score up here were doing falling by the wayside. And here's me chugging along, doing more work than them and passing. And that was the circumstance that yeah. said to me, how the, how the hell does this happen? How, does, how is it that school can let me believe that this is my sense of value, my sense of worth, when in the last two years I've proven that that's yeah. my actual value? Um, so I learned a lot about myself in that period, and I, I thought to myself, you know, how many other young black kids are being hoodwinked into believing that their place is here yeah. when they've got the potential to be here? How many poor white kids are being hoodwinked into believing that they're here when they've got the potential to be here? And so that, that kind of sense of rage and anger fueled my career for the rest of my days as, a, as an educator. You know, I wanted young black kids to see the things that I didn't see when I was at school. Yeah. And I wanted um, poor white kids to see the things that that needed to be seen, and I wanted teachers to see the things that they needed to see so that they didn't sell short kids short in, in what is such a magnificent profession that we should never underestimate or we should never, as teachers, collude with mediocrity um, when there's so much potential to be had and unveiled in every kid, regardless of where they come from. And the, this, what you're saying there is something that a lot of teachers feel, but it, there's very few people who actually have been able to kind of express that and, and take that out and, and actually change educational systems. And, and I would like to jump back to that Sherberg thing, because when you were offered the job as principal of Sherberg, I think it'd be fair to say the school was a mess. <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, school was a mess. Yeah, yeah. they were actually, uh, I think I mentioned it in the book, they were actually thinking of closing the school down, um, which is interesting because um, it causes me to wonder why they send a blackfella in, run it into the ground and close it down. But, <laughs> um, but they were thinking about closing the school down and just bussing kids into Mergen, which is five kilometres up the, up the road. Um, and the kids were chaotic, yes. Um, and the families had their challenges. But um, that... That didn't mean that they lacked potential, you know? So yeah. um, what they weren't met with was people who believed in, in them, and that's what they needed. Yeah. Um, I mean, one of the things mm. you talk about is this kind of because there was truancy and there was graffiti and there was uh, lack mm. of respect and abuse and all those things. But one of the things that I found most radical in the book that, that you spoke about, and it's probably something about my own experience, personal experience of education, is this thing, though, that you believe that 
because this community, there was quite a lot of chaos and there were families that were dysfunctional, school should be a place of solidity and safety and, uh, and, and a place where the children could learn to express themselves and be the full possibility of who they are. And it's this, there's a kind of turning around of approach here because school is something that certainly in my generation we were forced to go to and we had to bend to school. Your idea was in many ways, without compromising education, to make the school a place where the students wanted to go. Mm. That mm. it wasn't that they, they, they should have to go, they actually wanted to go there. Yeah, I, I never... Because um, when, I would, when I would talk to the teachers that I'd inherited at the school about the circumstances that we were confronted by. You know, why am I seeing kids running up and down on the roof? Why am I seeing bloody rubbish all over the playground when we wouldn't see this in another school? Why am I seeing kids swearing at the teachers um, and all of that kind of thing? Why am I seeing classrooms empty um, and all of that? And the teachers would say to me, oh, well, it's because the parents don't value education and it's because there's a lot of alcohol and gambling in the community and it's because of this and it's because of that. And all the while they're pointing the finger that way, never ever reflecting on what it is that we are doing as the teachers to create a circumstance that kids would want to turn up to. Um, and that's, that was the conversation that had to be had. And so, you know, subsequent to Sherberg, and because of what I watched with my own eyes at Sherberg, I've never, I will never collude with or entertain this circumstance or, or thing where teachers say to me, oh, or principals say, it's very hard. You know, I think in here I wrote about visiting a school in the Northern Territory where they gave given me the whole same tripe, you know, oh, it's because there's a lot of gambling, it's because of this, because there's a lot of sexual abuse. Um, and my response to that is, well, you're paid to be in this relationship with the kids. And what you're telling me is, if this is all true, what you're saying about sexual abuse and domestic violence and all of that kind of stuff out there, and kids are not turning up to school, they're making a choice to locate themselves amongst alcoholism, sexual abuse, domestic violence. What the hell does that say about the school that you're offering? <laughs> yes. This air-conditioned school. Yes. And they're choosing that rather than this school. Um, so what the hell does that say about what you're offering? And so I just don't buy it, and I don't think any of us should buy this about... Um, Kids not to, of course, if kids were sleeping in a, their own bed and all of that kind of thing um, and had breakfast in the morning and all of that kind of stuff, then it would be easier. But teaching children is about the relationship with them and we're paid to be in that relationship. And we've got to create a circumstance where a child would choose to get away from that and be present with us, you know? And if that exists, then this part shouldn't be too hard. Surely we can offer them somewhere in their lives where they've got a structured learning environment, the air conditioning. Um, if they're hungry, give, them a, give a kid a sandwich or something, you know? And let's get on with, get on with it, you know? Yeah. Mm. So I don't buy for a moment this thing about... And I, I've been around all of Australia pretty much. I've never found one Aboriginal parent who doesn't value education. Hmm. 
Um, they may not value the education that's on offer in their particular communities, yeah. but every Aboriginal parent wants all of their children to get a good education. So, uh, I mean, you were at Sherberg as principal for what, six, eight years? Six and a half years. Six yeah. and a half years, something like that. And then you went on to form the Stronger Smarter Institute and did all those things. But Sher Sherberg was a primary school, so these children mm -hmm. were then going to have to leave that school and go into uh, a, a high school in Mergen with a whole lot of white kids and, and everything like that. And you, your ambition really, what your stated ambition was to have them be equally literate and numerate mm. as any of the other white kids that were yeah. coming into them. And they were. Yeah. They were. And, and, so, and they were to the extent that they got accused of cheating when they turned up to grade eight at Mergen High School. <laughs> um, so that is the, the sort of bullshit that 12 and 13 year old kids had to contend with. Um, yeah, but you know, thankfully there's a really good principal at Mergen High School, but yeah. So I wanted them to be ready to go at high school, but it, 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 I guess it sheds the light on sometimes getting kids a strong and smart is not enough um, because they are not the problem. The problem are these forces that exist and these expectations that is, exist around them. So if they'd gone from being strong at, and smart at Sherbrooke School into an environment that was going to embrace and acknowledge them as being strong and smart, they could have gone anywhere, and lots of them did take off and fly. But it, but it points to the, the need for all of us as teachers to meet every child with high expectations and, and a commitment to expose every child to their own sense of potential. Mm. Absolutely, yeah. I'm just, uh, just thinking uh, the time here. I'd, I'd, I'd like to move on a little bit, if, if I may. Um, as I said in the introduction, you are now the Director General of a, of a department that's Seniors and Disabilities, but it's also Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander um, Affairs. Is it called Partnerships, is it? I think it's a Partnerships. partnerships. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I realise that you're not going to be talking here as the Director General. You're here as Chris Sara to mm -hmm. talk about this and everything like that. But there's a real hunger in the community, I think, at the moment to know how to respond to the possibility of a referendum later on this year on The Voice. Yeah, let's talk about that. I just need to explain one thing. On the book, my hair is very long. <laughs> yeah. There's a reason for that. It's because this photo was taken in the middle of last year and the Cowboys were winning. And I didn't want to cut my hair in case they were... Th anyway. So, important that you know that. Yeah. But let's talk about The Voice. I think it's a really important topic. And yeah, it's but... Even, I mean, I'd like to talk a little bit about I mean, the voice in particular, about the Makarata and what that means, but I'd also like to talk about what the, the Queensland government's doing, because the, the more I, in preparation to speak to you, I've been spending a bit of time on, the Queen, on your department's site on, on these various things, and I find that... Does it look all right? It look, it, well, it, in t terms of government sites, it's a, a mile ahead of a lot of other ones, <laughs> I have to say. But, um, but the, the bar's fairly low in there. <laughs> um, but one of the things that immediately came to mind was that, that the Queensland government has instituted a process of working towards treaty and working towards truth-telling, and there's a, a $300 million fund towards it, there's a, a year, there's money being put into every year. 
I, I, don't, I didn't know about that. I'm, I'm somebody who follows the news, who knows things. I didn't know this was happening. I wanted to ask, a, yeah. to ask you two things for you to please tell us a little bit about what's happening and then also tell us why we don't know this. What, yeah, what? I think there's some feedback in there for me um, if, you don't, if you don't know about that um, because there are some very exciting things that are happening. And I, I think I, I won't... It's the role of ministers and politicians to speak on behalf of government, but there is a very exciting agenda at play, and there are kind of three big ticket items um, in motion, and they've got to choose how they announce stuff and all of those sorts of things. But basically, we're it's there are three big chunks of work. One is around uh, the local thrive, what we call the local thriving communities agenda, which is about bringing forward local Aboriginal leadership and Torres Strait Islander leadership to have a say in how we and the relationship with them as government do service delivery and service design on the ground. You know, it just makes sense to do that. We all watch with a sense of lament about the stuff that we've seen coming out of the TV at Alice Springs. And I think, man, if you just embrace this local leadership and give them the keys and put them in the driver's seat and be directed by what they want to see happen locally, um, this would minimise the chaos. And, you know, some things will work and some things might fail, but the thing is you've got local leadership engaged at a local level. So I'm proud to say that, you know, that's part of our agenda as Queensland is about embracing local leadership as part of this local thriving communities agenda. Then we're in the pursuit of the voice stuff. I was in a meeting with some really cool people today. Uh, there's been a First Nations consultative committee established to give us advice on how they think the voice should be structured within um, the voice to the Queensland government and the Queensland cabinet should be structured. So that's a process at play. And that's not so much about localised service delivery and service design, it's probably more about policy delivery, policy design. Uh, and that, will, that work will continue regardless of what happens in the, refer in the referendum. Um, and then, of course, there's this other big chunk called the path to treaty. Um, from, we're waiting on... There'll be a um, truth-telling and healing process um, that is imminent that I think will be great for the psyche of us as Queenslanders and for Queensland. Um, and that's about positioning the Queensland government... Um, and communities for a state of ready, readiness about negotiating treaties, which would reflect on the sort of conversations we should have had right at the start of the relationship. And so it's about reflecting on the past and recognising and making good on the mistakes we've made in the past, but also seeking agreement about how we should coexist um, on this land that we now share into the future. So these are things that... Um, can, I, can I interrupt you there? Can what, what does truth-telling practically, how, how's that going to look? Are they going to be uh, a tribunal or something? Like, I mean, truth-telling that happened in South Africa after apartheid and there's various other countries that have seen this, this happening. Is there a model? Is there some kind of structure? Yeah, yeah. Uh, look, I think it's probably too early to make those sorts of... That, that design elements haven't been finalised and I'll leave that for the politicians to announce at the right time. But basically there will be a process... Um, whereby we can speak the truth about our history. And I, I think overall, like conceptually, this is a good thing for us as Queenslanders and it allows us to um, 
transcend from this circumstance where we're pretending or some of us pretending that these atrocities didn't happen in the past and um, that and there's... But we all kind of know that there's skeletons not only buried but skeletons just lying around in our past. Yes. So let's just recognise them, learn from that and seek some agreement about how we co coexist. I think if we can recognise our past, own it, learn the lessons from it, um, make good where we can make good, uh, that's a much, that puts us in a place for a much more honourable relationship going forward, rather than us not have a process and we just keep bouncing along, pretending. Yes. Yeah, not not realise, not not kind of, we're all pretending to ignore these bodies that are metaphorically buried or still lying around. Yeah. I, I think you know, as blackfellas, um, this is a good thing. Um, when I speak about it, think about it as a public servant with a very strong interest in serving the Queensland public. I think it's a good thing. Uh, it just allows us to get to a more honourable position than where we're at at the moment. And out of that, you think uh, uh, um, something will come which will allow a treaty to be kind of dr to be drawn up, some sort of some sort of treaty between First Nations people and and the present government. Is that is that the the goal? If I let you in on the kind of thinking that's occurring at the moment, what's appearing most likely is that it's not one treaty, it's probably more of a whole range of treaties. So for me, for instance, my hometown is Bundaberg. Um, that's my grandfather's country, Tarabalang. North of there is my grandmother's country. So we might sit down as Tarabalang people and negotiate potentially a treaty around how we recognise the mistakes of the past and how we... Um, make good on those mistakes and how we agree to coexist into the future. And it could could involve things like, I don't know if any of you, I'm a bit biased, but Bundaberg is a pretty nice town. Um, you will have all often heard of Monrepo. That's a pretty sacred sort of spot for yeah. us. Let's just agree that that place is never, ever to be developed. And there are some other places around where there might be borer rings here. Can we just agree to not ever touch that and retain that, not only for our sacred interests in that place, but for other people to come and learn from the ancient connection and, the, and learn and be mindful of the ancient footprints on this landscape that are longer than 260, 70-something years, but tens of thousands of years. That's something that we treasure, but it's something that you should treasure. So can we agree not to bulldoze that and thing? Um, and we might say, all right, if there's going to be developments of the port or digging up some stuff over there, can, can given our circumstance uh, and that we're traditional owners of this country, can we get a piece of that action to ensure our um, sustainability and vibrancy into the future? Or could we, can we commit to having a cultural centre or, you know, Queensland government, you've got schools and police stations. Can we just have a circumstance where everybody who walks into the school gate says, welcome to East Bundaberg State School. This is on the land of the Tarabalang people and this is how you say hello in their language. So when you think treaties, it's not, it's not like we're coming to grab your backyard or something like that. So we don't want people to get spooked by those kinds of things. Um, and the important thing about a treaty is it's a negotiated document. So if you're not happy with it, um, then let's just keep the conversation going and we'll get to a point where we can agree. Yeah. yeah. 
I, I mean, I ask that particularly because uh, as we approach, and, and we'll move to the kind of federal voice uh, in a moment, but as, as we approach that referendum, one of the things that, I mean, there's so much in the, in the press about at the moment, and there's this, these people launching a no case, and, and the no yeah. case is, is a case that seems to have some support amongst some First Nations people. <laughs> uh, if I can address yeah. one of the things that they've been saying, which it seems, what, what I'm thinking of, um, of, of uh, Sorry, my name, Price. Um, uh, yeah. the, uh, <laughs> sorry, I'm having. A I know who you're talking about. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, is, is I thought I saw a picture of her with a. Oh no. Is, is saying that somehow we we need to have um, we need to have a treaty and truth telling before we have the voice, but it seems to me that that the two things are not mutually exclusive because it's not just the Queensland government, the South Australian government, and the Victorian government, particularly all these three state governments are actually actively engaging in a process of treaty and truth-telling. So, you know, why, do, why, why can't we have the voice as well, is, is, yeah. is my question, I guess. Yeah. I, I think my message to those folks, uh, and I think some of it's a bit of attention-seeking, you know, um, to make a name for themselves, and some of it's... Um, I think what we're seeing amidst these calls for more detail, more detail, show us more detail, I think what's... If you ask me, frankly, I think there are some Aboriginal leadership in the background with their hands up the back of both Prime Ministers and various politicians to say more detail about the model because they've got a vested interest in what the model is so that they can inject themselves into a model going forward so they can clip the ticket and get a return from here into eternity. So, But my... Um, <coughs> My advice is this to those folks and to, to you guys is let's not overthink this. Um, the question is, should First Nations people have a voice in matters relating to First Nations affairs? Yes or no? Um, and it's as simple as that. This, let's not get confused or distracted by this call for detail and whatever. Um, let's just have this question first. I'm very uh, persuaded and influenced by the... the what's the constitutional lawyer's name? Um, no, no, her name escaped. Anne, not, uh, Anne Toomey? Anne Toomey? Yeah, when she says, look, con the Constitution is the beachhead kind of document, and the detail is... It just asserts a principle... Like, are we going to give First Nations people a say in matters affect them, yes or no? And if we agree yes, okay, let's do that. But let's let the Parliament sort that out and let's let the detail be sorted out at a later stage. And if you're worried about the detail, well, that's going to get thrashed out in two different chambers. It's got to get through two different, the, the Senate and the House of Reps, and they're probably going to have to do a full-blown consultation process. So the detail will come, let's not get hung up on that. The question is, should First Nations people have a say in a f matters that are going to affect their lives? And, and it, it's, it makes it very simple the way you're putting it there. But I, I also think that... Can I just, I'll, just, I'll just say, look, when we had the... When there were questions about um, same-sex marriage and those sorts of things, were people wondering about the detail then, no, we're just asserting a principle. And I'm sure, I haven't really done this, I should do it, but if we were to go through the Constitution, we'd pick out examples of where 
it asserts a position, yes or no, the constitution's changed, and then the detail is sorted, yes. sorted out later on. So let's not get hung up on the detail. But it's also that the Aboriginal people themselves, the First Nations people, gathered at Alice Springs in 2016 to draw up this Makarata, and this what, which is you know this statement mm. from the heart. And uh, look, I, I don't know if everyone in this room has read the statement from the heart. Can I tell you, it's actually only 440 words long. It's not a big document, and mm. it's it's a, a really generous statement, and it's a, an invitation to white Australia to walk beside First Nations people. It's not a, it's, it's not a tract, it's not a legal document, it's, it's, comes, it's a statement from the heart. And just click it online, the Makarata, read it. 440 words, it's nothing, right? But it's a beautiful and it's, it's a, a request, an invitation to us. It's worth understanding that this call for voice, treaty, truth, didn't just come from the Uluru Statement, though. That this is this has been a call that's been coming from our old people for many, many decades before that. And I'm reminded of um, the time when the Uluru Statement came out. I, <laughs> I was um, co-chairing the Prime Minister's Indigenous Advisory Council at the time, and the Prime Minister was Malcolm Turnbull, who I think is a really smart guy. I don't mind what other people have to say, but I really like him and he's a very um, smart guy. And obviously he rejected it at the time. And I remember it well because he rang me on the phone and I didn't answer the phone because I didn't know the number, <laughs> but there's this voicemail from the bloody Prime Minister, mind you. Um, so we talked on the phone and I said, he explained to me, here he's rejecting it, he said, because he said, Chris, I know about running a referendum or campaigning. And he said, my very strong view is that if we run this now, it will fail and that will be tragic. And I've got to say, I believed him, you know. Uh, it's not so hard to believe that. When you think of that time, he was Prime Minister, he had this hardcore kind of rump of a right wing in his party. It was never going to fly in that time. But my response to him was, yes, Prime Minister, I understand that. But what you have to understand is, whilst this may be rejected today, these, uh, you have to understand the essence of what's called for in the Uluru Statement. It's around voice, treaty, truth. Those things have, be those things have been called upon or demanded from long before the Uluru Statement, um, and they will persist until a Prime Minister takes it seriously. And, it's, and um, along comes a new Prime Minister, along comes a change of circumstance. I spoke with Malcolm Turnbull late last year and he's shifted. He said, yep, the country's ready for this. You know, the times have changed. Um, so I think he cops a hiding for his view at the time, but he, I think his view was right at the time, you know, that it, it wasn't the right time. But I think now is the right time. It's made a little bit crazy by some crazy folks. I won't say any names, but it is... <laughs> it is I suppose it's to be expected. I think what disappoints me is... Um, some people are coming across quite unhinged in the conversation. Um, and you have to question their motives. 
But my advice is let's not overthink this. It's a simple question. Should First Nations people have a say in First Nations affairs, yes or no? Uh, there's plenty of data to suggest that we haven't done a pretty good, a good job of it. So let's just embrace the agency and the humanity of First Nations Australians and let's trust us as blackfellas to know what we want and know, we will, know where we're going and know how to get there. I, I'm also intrigued by those folks who are, those non-Indigenous folks who are saying, where's the detail, where's the detail? Or, or they'll say, how is this going to affect the life, change the lives of um, young Aboriginal children or mothers who are suffering, enduring domestic violence in remote communities and all of that kind of stuff, and they do their chest beating around that. And for anybody who's not persuaded one way or another or doesn't have a um, deep understanding about the complexities of such issues, you sort of think, yeah, actually, um, how is it going to change the lives of people like that? So there are two things I want to say about that. One is, um, as blackfellas, we've been raising concerns about this for a long time. And in circumstances where our voice has been embraced, we've been able to make the changes that are required. Secondly, I'll say this. Um, do we really think those people who are beating their chest about wanting to change the lives of young Indigenous families in remote or any communities, do we really think that they're that interested in the well-being of some of those families? And my point is this. Um, these issue, these, the, the complexity of these issues are not new. They've been existing for many, many decades. So decades ago, where were these people beating their chest about the conditions that Aboriginal communities were being subjected to, you know, not running water, um, exposure to abuse and domestic violence and dysfunction and all of that kind of thing. Where were these people beating their chest about wanting to make a difference to their lives back then? They were nowhere to be seen. And so, frankly, my view is if, if they had shut their mouth back then, they probably should shut their mouth now. Mm. <laughs> On that note, let's go to some questions from the audience. Yes. Is that right? Now, um, as I said at the beginning, we're recording this for our podcast, so please wait for the mic to come to you. And please, if you have a question, and I'm sure a lot of you do have questions, can you please frame it as a question and not as a statement, right? We don't want to hear a story. Chris will take, the, uh, take the, your question and answer it. But So please um, formulate a question rather than a statement. Do I have any questions in the audience? Yes, I've got one straight away here. All right, the microphone's coming. I see Kathy Jackson in the audience over there. Hello, Kathy. Can I see any other hands just so I'm going where we're going next? We've got one here. This okay. chair is comfy, okay. isn't it, that, yeah. Can one, I keep two, this chair after this? <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking, of course. Dr. Chris, I would just like to make a comment with a to preface, a to preface a question about truth-telling about massacres. On Australia Day, I was at a local remembrance service. And I know some of these Aboriginal people from other meetings in the community. 
but I've never thought about the fact that his grandfather and his people of that generation, so recent, were massacred here on the Sunshine Coast. And I feel that if some of this was spoken about now, it would help white Australians who have no empathy to understand how close this is and what sort of a burden our Aboriginal people, right close to us now, are trying to reconcile our actions, our people's actions, with their suffering. Is there a question? Thank you. Britain here. Do you want to say anything to that? Yeah, look, I think, uh, yeah, I think you make a good point. Um, and I, I guess all I can do is underline my earlier comment about the what's to be had from a truth-telling process. And by the way, it's not all about negative stuff. There are some really amazing stories about Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal folks walking together. It's worth telling those stories and being truthful about that. But, but yeah, you know, I, I think the point you make is very, very solid, and that is if we can understand those atrocities of the past, it's not so hard to make the connections to the complexities that we're confronted by today. Mm. Um, thank you very much, Stephen. Um, Chris, I hope I can call you Chris. Yes, you can. Uh, okay. Um, that was very moving and, and, a, and a touching statement from you, and I really appreciate it. Um, Regardless of which path this whole thing takes, truth-telling, uh, the voice, uh, treaty, you know, whether one leads the other or whether it moves on its own, whether there's a referendum that, depending on how it's worded, could be its success or failure, depending on all that, how come we still talk about reconciliation when there's never been a conciliation? What's your name? Ricky. <laughs> Can I call you Ricky? <laughs> your name, last name's not Ciliation, is it? <laughs> Ricky Ciliation. No. See what I did there? Uh, <laughs> um, I'm not really sure how to answer your question, Ricky, but the point that you make is, well, it's a point well made that we never really got the relationship right to start with, you know, so um, all I can do is agree with you. Mm. I think there's a lady with a hand up. There's two people just there, yeah. Thanks very much. Um, my question, which is a question, um, is to your general, not to your specific story, but your general expertise. As a Anglo-Celt in Australia, I know many people who are trying to make connection with local Aboriginal history and people. What strikes me mostly is there's very few Aboriginal people and I feel like we're bombarding them. And I'm not sure, but equally, we don't want to move forward as non-Aboriginals just doing our own thing and, you know, ignoring any input. So I'm not sure how to tread that line and what we should do best to engage without overwhelming. Good question. Yeah, thank you for your question. I. I... I think it's, I think your question is, if I can paraphrase, is how do we connect? And it's interesting to understand this, what I'm about to tell you, that my sense 
of being Aboriginal is not the totality of my existence. Um, it's, a, it's a layer upon my core humanity. And you heard, me, you heard us talk earlier about my father being Italian. That's another layer upon my core humanity. Um, you heard about me being a um, public servant. That's another layer upon my core humanity. Uh, I'm a grandfather. I've got two amazing grandkids that are very gorgeous. I'm biased, of course. I've got three. So I'm a father. I'm a grandfather. Um, the totality of my identity is not just that layer of being Aboriginal. Um, it, my, my sense of being Aboriginal resonates quite strongly most of the time upon my core humanity. So what has that got to do any, with anything? Well, to your question, it's to search for... It's to, to recognise the layers upon my core humanity and the differences and not be spooked by them and not let your view be contaminated by stereotypical thinking, um, but be excited and ex intrigued and interested in them and be prepared to learn about that. Um, but if you really want to connect, let's go more deeply to the things that we... You know, at that level, you and me are different, but there's, at this deeper level, you and me are same at the level of our core humanity. And so what does that mean? Well, let's connect at that level of sameness first, at the level of our core humanity. When you, if you can understand that, then it doesn't become that hard because how do you connect with other human beings? Show me a picture of your grandkids if you've got some more. Um, let's talk about those sorts of things. And then once we establish that, rapport, connection, and all of that kind of thing through connect, letting your humanity connect with mine, then we can explore that other part. But don't come to me assuming that I am just that because I'm so much more than, than that, you know? Um, of course, my sense of being Aboriginal resonates quite strongly and it resonates, you know, with, in all sorts of ways. But my, there are times when my sense of being Italian resonates strongly, and I really love that. So some of those people who I told to shut up before will say, you've got to be, um, are you Aboriginal or are you Australian? Because we're all the same. Well, identity is not that straightforward. Um, and I don't really give a, I don't really care too much about how you want to define me. But I am all of this, you know, and... When I fish, go fishing in the Burnett River and I know my people have fished there for thousands of years and I think, man, this is really cool. Um, the footprints of my ancestors are here. My sense of being Aboriginal is resonating strongly upon my core humanity. Even when I'm being subjected to low expectations and the maths teacher says, oh, you got 75%, that must have been an easy test. That makes... <laughs> That's a, that makes my sense of being Aboriginal re resonate because he's perceiving me or he's reinforcing a message that's contaminated about how he understands my sense of being Aboriginal. Or if I've been called a little black bastard by the guy next door, um, that makes my sense of being Aboriginal resonate more strongly. 
but I'm, I'm never detached from my core humanity, neither are you. When I'm in Milenko in my father's village, and I speak Italian with my um, brothers and my cousins and all of that, I'll be there in a couple of weeks, actually. So that's going to be cool. <clears throat> my sense of being Italian is resonating strongly. È più forte così. That doesn't mean I've stopped being Aboriginal. It just means that my sense of being Italian is resonating more strongly than my sense of being Aboriginal. Does that make sense? Um, so I am all of this. Um, and there are things that make you and me different, but there are things in there that make you and me same. So if it's hard, find the things that make us same and connect there and then go from there. Does that make sense? Mm. Um. Sorry, um, did the lady with the black dress here in the centre, Tony, you, you gave the microphone to her before, yep. And she very politely handed it on to the person who had their hand up before. We she probably, gets to have two we, questions. We eh? probably only got time for about two questions, so we might take a question from you, and I think there was another one in the front here. You'll have to decide between you two who gets to do it, okay? Sure. Please, go ahead. Um, given that you've made such great strides in leadership within schools, I was curious to learn what you might think about changing in terms of curriculum and school text to better engage with the likes of the children in Cherbourg. Oh, gosh. Um, hmm. That's just one part of the relationship that a teacher has with a child, you know, and it's an important part. So there's the curriculum and then there's the pedagogy and then there's the relationship. To your specific question around the curriculum, I think what has to happen is local schools have to get better connected to local communities and get in a dialogue about um, the things that make the landscape special. And I think that's you know, and the work that we do at Stronger Smarter does that. It tries to bring local communities and school leadership together for a deeper, more authentic relationship so that we can understand the context of where we are and we can inform the curriculum. When it comes to the actual... Yeah, I think... So again, I say there's the pedagogy, and sorry for non-teachers to get so technical, there's the pedagogy, which is the, how we do the teaching. There's the curriculum, which is the stuff that we teach. And then there's the relationship. Um, the the um, if the relationship is good, then we understand how to shape the curriculum or the learning experiences. So you know, when I reflect horrifically on Sherberg, you know, I think of kids doing colouring in sheets and all of that kind of thing, which is just not very good pedagogy, not very good curriculum. Um, but if you, if you understand a child um, and that they're excited and know the things that they love, you can do things like, okay, these kids love rugby league, greatest game of all. Um, write that down, Mark Newman. Um, then let's, let's do our maths and, okay, we've got to learn about tables. Let's do maths on Jonathan Thurston's statistics for the last couple of weeks. So it's not Aboriginal curriculum, but it's curriculum that's going to make an Aboriginal kid 
fire up, you know, like I would get fired up by that kind of stuff. But it comes down to the relationship and how we are as teachers in that relationship. And I think we must never underestimate the power and the magic of getting that part right. Let me show you something. Let me ask you this question and I'll show you why that's important. I'm assuming you're a teacher, is it? Yeah. Hands up in the room here if you remember something that a teacher said to you when you were in primary school or high school. Hands up if you remember something. Have a look around. This is the power and the magic of being a teacher. And we won't go around all of the stories, but some of these folks will, re and you know, so like some of these folks are in their 60s. Um, and <laughs> it's been a long time since they've been in school. You're very generous. <laughs> but the point is, decades and decades and decades and decades after they remember something about what a teacher said, and some of them will say they made them feel good or they made them feel like shit. That's the power and the magic of our profession. And we should never underestimate that um, because as a teacher, we can make a throwaway comment or a throwaway line that we'll probably forget, but it has the potential be to be remembered for the rest of their life. Does that, you, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So it's the relationship that's more important. And if we get that part right, we can get the curriculum right, we can get the pedagogy right. And just quietly, it's not, the answer's not direct instruction, but even though we spent <laughs> tens of millions of dollars on that. But we've, got, we've got time for one more question. Don't start Jacinta. Me on that Jacinta. One. Yep. Hello, Jacinta. Hi, hi Chris. Um, my question is about something that I, as a white person, often add to acknowledging country. Um, I, I do the acknowledging past, present, and future leaders, and then I make a comment about as white people who, while we may not have directly been involved in the killing of people in this area, we currently live with a whole lot of privilege because of that, and so therefore we have some responsibility um, in this acknowledgement of country, and mm. it's, it's incumbent upon us to act with responsibility in whatever mm. way we can. Is it okay to add a comment like that to an acknowledgement of country? Is it working for you? Well, it works for me, and I don't get I don't get feedback to say, don't say it. Yeah, but no, I think that's fine. And, and I can say anything I want about white people because I've got a best friend who's a white person, so <laughs> I can say anything I want. That <laughs> gives me licence to say anything. I was at the Gold Coast on the weekend and there was people getting drunk there. I think they're going to need an alcohol management plan. <laughs> there. But in the book, Stephen, we talk about a high expectations relationship. And so if you, you make that line of commentary, what I'm seeing from you, and I'm interested in searching for your humanity, I see yours reaching out to mine, and you're having a go, you know? Um, but in a high expectations relationship, if I, if I was offended by that, I might, and the relationship is good between you and me, then I might pull you aside and say, mm, maybe 
don't say that or you could say this differently or stuff like that. I've pulled up a few of my colleagues, they won't mind me saying this, directors general, just pull them aside quietly and saying, listen, if you say, in the meeting we just had, you were saying ATSI people. If you say that in an Aboriginal community, you are going to get hammered. And you're a nice guy, so I don't want to see you get hammered. So just don't say ATSI in front of people. And their response is, oh shit, I never realised. But that's what happens in a positive, high expectations relationship by, that's anchored by connections to humanity. So we're going to make mistakes along the way. Let's not get be sidetracked by, by that. Yeah. And vote yes. Don't overthink it. <laughs> Put your hands together, please. Chris Sarah. Such a privilege to have you come up to Milani for us. Thank you. I explained about the hair, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, look, let me just, if I crave your indulgence just for a moment to give a couple of thank yous. Thank you particularly to um, Rob and Lee. They have, uh, from Rosetta Books, they have both um, Joanna's and Chris's books at the back of the hall, and both Joanna and Chris will be back there sitting there signing books in a moment. Um, please uh, please uh, go there and don't waylay them on the way. Um, to Howie for sound and lights and recordings. We'll have the podcast up as soon as we can. I see Adrian Anderson in the back here. I'd just like to give a shout out to him because he was the one who made it available so that now we can have them on Apple Podcasts so you can um, subscribe to them and appear on your phone magically by themselves. Um, these events wouldn't happen without a lot of help from, from volunteers and um, uh, I'd like to express, without naming all of them, thank you very much to the Millennium Community Centre people who are doing the bar, to the people who helped me set out the chairs, who people on the door, the people who put the chairs away. Thank you very much indeed. We're also very pleased to be able to announce that we received funding from the Sunshine Coast Council for Outspoken in the last round of the Creative uh, Industry Investment Program. Uh, the funds come jointly through the Arts Coast and the Art and Heritage Levy and Radoff in partnership with the Queensland Government. Our next event, that will be in on March the 10th. Probably most of you know about it. It's with Alexander McCall-Smith. We will be doing it in the Mullaney Primary School. Uh, we have already sold more than half the tickets, so if you'd like to come along to that night, I do recommend you get on the website soon and um, buy some tickets uh, to avoid disappointment. You'll do you receive our emails? You don't? Please just go to Mulaney, Outspoken Mulaney website, scroll to the bottom of the homepage, put your name and your email address in. They will come into your box magically once a month or so. You can listen to the recordings on the podcast. Um, there are 55 episodes on there now. There will soon be 57. Um, please, finally, thank you to all of you, our audience, for continuing to support these events. It's a quite an exceptional thing that we have here, and it only happens because of you, and it happens because of these wonderful guests we have. Please put your hands together once again for Chris Sara and Joanna Jenkins.